0: Aronowitz back here podcasting to you again. There's been quite a span of time for various reasons why we have not been up and running these podcasts, but we're back in action. Uh, previously, we uploaded a mix up for students from the pulmonary section, and that was an interview that Janelle Vu Pugachetti, sometimes affectionately known as Jay Vupu, to her friends and colleagues, uh, did with one of our pulmonologists at UC Davis, Dr. Mike Skivo. And today I have the pleasure of introducing this interview with Dr. Jen Kogan. Uh, Jen will get into explaining what her current role is, but she is currently a faculty member at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And I'm very excited to post this podcast, and I truly appreciate Jen's humoring me and allowing me to do so. Uh, I did this interview actually probably about six or eight months ago, and it was published in the AIM Insight newsletter, which is a newsletter that was formally uh, circulated to the uh, Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine membership. Sadly, that newsletter is uh, being sundowned, i.e., buried, I guess, um, for various reasons. And so I think the next obvious stage to these interviews with leaders in medicine is to create podcasts out of the interviews and to post the podcasts and invite membership to listen to them while they're driving to work, exercising on a treadmill or whatever the heck you're doing right now as you listen to this podcast. So without further ado, I want to interview, uh, introduce this interview that was done six or eight months ago with Dr. Jen Kogan. It was truly a pleasure, and I'll let her uh, take it away as I ask the questions. So, Jen, tell me a little bit about your most recent position and your current um, position that you're in at UPenn. I am currently the Director
1: of Undergraduate Education in the Department of Medicine, so I oversee student clinical rotations for the Department of Medicine and do career advising for the fourth year students who are applying for medicine residency. And I am the Assistant Dean of Faculty Development for the School of Medicine.
0: I've been in
1: that latter role for the past year and a half. So I started that in July of 2015. And the director of undergraduate medical education, I think I've been in that role probably since 2005 or 2006. And then, as you know, I was the medicine clerkship director for many years.
0: How many years?
1: I was the clerkship director... I started off as a assistant clerkship director, and then I became an associate clerkship director, and then I became, I think, full clerkship director, probably in like two thousand and four, two thousand and five. But I was a clerkship director for about thirteen or fourteen years.
0: Wow! Yeah. A- any um, insights thus far on because it sounds like the newest position you're doing is the um, faculty development for the school yeah. of medicine. That sounds like a huge job. Um, any brilliant insights about that position so far
1: Um, working with faculty is definitely different than working with students and residents Um, and you uh, let's see insights I think realizing um, how important faculty development is in the multiple missions of an institution um, both in terms of just you know the importance of faculty development around teaching and the faculty development around leadership and faculty development around evolving competencies that we weren't necessarily taught when we ourselves were trainees. Um, And recognizing, I think, a lot of faculty want that development um, and appreciating um, the challenge of delivering it in a way that uh, faculty find it useful, but also where it's feasible and practical that they actually can do that faculty development, given how busy everybody is. And it's hard to get people across different departments and divisions in the same place at the same time. So just appreciating some of the logistics of it. You know, students, you can tell them where they need to be and when they need to be there, but that's much more challenging with faculty. So it's, I guess... Figuring out the content that's important, but then also really thinking through how do you deliver that content.
0: And have you figured out any um, unique ways or or even mundane ways to get them together? Because that was my experimenting uh, with more
1: virtual, like online faculty development. So, as an example, We now have a, we started one of our big areas of focus was um, orienting faculty to their role as teachers. So we used to have an in-person overview of education that all faculty when they came to Penn as a new faculty member were required to attend. Um, And it was recorded so you you could like watch the recording of the overview, but what we did is we created an online orientation that you can go in and do it whenever you want, and you can look at the parts of the, it's called the digital welcome, you can look at the parts of the orientation that are relevant to what your job is going to be. So you don't have to, if you don't work with medical students, you don't have to look at anything about teaching with medical students. You would just look at, you know, residents and teaching residents, or if you're not doing any clinical teaching and you're only doing lecturing, there's brief videos that you can look at and tip sheets for how to be an effective lecturer. So it's a completely open learning environment. And then we also experimented with creating a course called Teaching at the Perlman School of Medicine 101 that's also required of all new faculty, and we have an online course where you have to take the course during a certain week, but you can log on to the course whenever it's convenient for you with discussion boards. And so we're experimenting with you know, having very brief videos that faculty watch, and then creating some discussion board questions, and then letting faculty talk to each other through a discussion board. And we just piloted the first online course this fall. We had about 75 faculty participate. And they actually did talk to each other on the discussion board. We were skeptical about whether they would use it, but they, they did. Wow. Um, and there were some pretty rich conversations. So it was just the first time <laughs> we're launching the second one in January. We'll see how that one goes.
0: And and do you have – in? so you must have some in-person meetings as well to kind of build the spree de corps or whatever, um, or has that been difficult?
1: Yeah, we are – you know, I think there is something really valuable to face-to-face, um, and some people, I think, really want that, and so for many of our offerings, we give faculty a choice of whether they want to come in person or do it online um, in kind of this course where a lot of other people are taking it at the same time. Um But there's not, like, a requirement that you have to meet in person. I mean, many of the divisions, this is at the level of the school, so many of the divisions and departments do more face-to-face within the division and department.
0: Oh, I see. Interesting. It sounds like kind of a fun and challenging part of your job, though, huh?
1: I am learning a lot about online education, which I did not know much about before. So I'm definitely learning a lot.
0: And have you? Nobody's
1: going to sit and watch a 20 minute video. You know, uh, if you can't say it in five minutes,
0: figure out how you can And have, have you identified any good resources in terms of faculty development around the country?
1: Um, you know, I have. There's definitely places across the country. I think that have great faculty development programs, um, and we definitely kind of looked uh, to try to see what other folks were doing. Um, We didn't find as much, and it may exist, and I'm just not aware of it, of more of this kind of online stuff. I know Ohio, I think University of Ohio has a robust online faculty development program um, that Cynthia Letford, I think, Mm -hmm. does a bit with.
0: Interesting. So, Jen, what was your earliest leadership experience?
1: At ten, or
0: oh, at any in your life, it could my be going. Life. It could be going back to kindergarten.
1: Oh, I had no leadership in kindergarten. <laughs> um, probably, my first leadership was really, um, gosh, probably when I became an assistant clerkship director. When I first became. A faculty member after I finished my fellowship probably the first real leadership experience where I had a title
0: <laughs> and what was the um, what were some of the earliest leadership lessons that you learned
1: I learned how important communication is and I learned how important listening is uh, And I also learned I think one of the struggles I had early on because I became a clerkship director at the institution that I was a medical student and resident uh, at and I had to learn um, how to sort of be in a leadership role and then the folks who were my teachers before me, like how I had, when I had to go, I'm not gonna phrase this very well, But, you know, when I had to go and sort of discuss something with somebody who was older than I was and previously had taught me as a medical student and I wanted somebody to do something (laughs) who was sort of older and used to be my teacher, I had to learn how to navigate that, mostly with my own discomfort, um, feeling like I was sort of the young newbie on the street and, you know, who was I to ask these individuals to do something differently. So that was, I think, one of the hardest things that I had to learn how to do
0: and and how did you overcome because that does sound rather difficult and I think is one of the disadvantages of staying in the institution where you trained
1: um I think in part you just get better at it over time and time goes by and so it makes those issues uh less um I don't know like it's sort of uh, The the issue kind of resolves just because you move along. But I, you know, I had mentors, so Lisa Bellini would go into her office and I'd be like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, she, so good mentorship for me helped me to navigate some of those difficult situations. And then, you know, I did uh, probably somewhere like a third of the way into my career. I actually sought out some leadership courses just so that I could have a framework about you know, just a better framework for how to, um, you know, share your vision, identify your mission, how to better negotiate, how to better deal with conflict resolution, Mm -hmm. um, just to make sure I was doing things in a way that made sense.
0: And what were those? I think I've
1: done two or three leadership courses now.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, And do you recall offhand which ones those were?
1: mostly local um, at my own institution, so there was one that I did called Total Leadership that is was developed by somebody at Wharton, and the Department of Medicine was offering it to some faculty, so I did that one, and then our, at Penn, they also have the something called the Office of Organization Effectiveness that also runs a leadership course. And so I did that as well. And then there were times, you know, I think where there were a few AIM meetings um, where I would try to pick out some of the leadership topics and go to those workshops. Like once I figured out, like, what's my job as a clerkship director and got pretty comfortable with that, at some of the AIM meetings I would go into some of the workshops, I think, that were offered by APM or AIM to get some additional content there. Mm
0: -hmm. And did, just um, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, did you ever come across any books that you found useful in in the area of leadership?
1: Um, no uh, no I mean I read uh, Sandra what uh, Sandberg's Lean in uh-huh. but um, more because somebody was visiting my house and left it <laughs> than because I actually you know bought the book to read it so I mean I would say leadership has not been something i've been I don't know if you want to write this, but like, I don't know that I've sought out more than these kind of courses. I haven't read a lot of books on it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were to encapsulate your leadership style in one or even two words, what would those words be?
1: Um, i try to be collaborative. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would say collaborative. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, looking, um, you've uh, you've been in a number of very um, interesting leadership jobs. But looking back over what you've done to date, what um, what's your your favorite leadership job, voluntary or paid? Clerkship director. Uh-huh. And, and why is that? I don't know if is considered a leadership job, but parenting.
1: But being a clerkship, I loved being a clerkship director.
0: Uh huh. And what was it that was that you loved so much about it? I really
1: loved working with medical students at that stage of their professional development. Um, I think the core clerkship year is tremendously formative for students, both in terms of the kind of doctor they become, what they value, how they practice, what they're interested in. And so I really liked working with students at that stage of their training and getting to know them. And I also really like curriculum development. And so thinking about if I have these students for 8 weeks or 12 weeks, you know, getting to decide what's the content that we need to cover, how are we going to cover it, how are we going to assess it. And so I think the combination of just the medical education part regarding curriculum development and assessment and then just really liking working with medical students, getting to know them, and being part of that uh, third year and then on to the fourth year. There was a period where I was the clerkship director and the sub director, and so I really got to know the students well, and that was just really incredibly rewarding.
0: And how long I think were I still identify myself as a clerkship director, even though I'm not. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and how long were you the sub-internship director?
1: Um, maybe, oh, I'd have to pull up my CV, but let's say, I don't know, maybe four, four-ish years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I can look and let you know. Oh, that's okay. Right. It, it was a few years.
0: Um. And what was your, you know, so if that was your favorite leadership job that you've had so far, what was your least favorite? I think I have a sneaking suspicion I know the answer to this question, but what was your least favorite part of the job of being a clerkship director?
1: Oh, my least favorite part of the job mm-hmm. um, was grading. Yeah, I thought <laughs> you'd say dealing that. With, um dealing with students who are unhappy uh-huh. managing or conversations with students who didn't feel that their grade was the deserved grade or when you have to give a grade that's hard to give. I mean, that's just, that is rough.
0: (laughs) And in your experience as president of the clerkship directors of internal medicine and being a clerkship director for many years, do you think that's a universal feeling of clerkship directors?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we are all a fairly nice lot of people And we really want to see our students succeed, and we want to do everything to help them to succeed. And I think we all know what the consequences of, you know, certain grades are. And so it's this tremendous tension between your learner and then your sort of role as a clerkship director and, you know, making sure that if somebody, you say somebody has achieved a certain degree of Competence, or has certain competencies that they actually do. And that, I think, was just the roughest part of the job. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you were advising a young, up-and-coming clerkship director, someone who'd been in the job for a year or two, who was pondering the difficulty of that part of the job, what advice would you have for them?
1: Um, I think the things that I... Try. It's funny, I just had this conversation with one of our sub directors who just started about a, within the past year and is struggling with this. Um, and I said, I don't know that I have such a great answer, but this is what I tried to tell myself to make this tension easier. Um, one, the key is to be a good enough clerkship or sub eye director that you find out as soon as possible that somebody is struggling um, and that you you create with your residents and your faculty that if there is something that they suspect somebody is struggling, they reach out to you immediately as the sub clerkship director so that you can put into place as much as you possibly can to help the learner to get better um, and to put in place whatever coaching, remediation, additional help can get the student to where they need to be. Um, So that at least you feel like you've done everything possible to help that student. Um, As opposed to you have no idea that the student is struggling. Maybe they don't even know that they're struggling. And then you're sitting down to do grades and you realize that the student has done really poorly. Like that's the worst because you're just helpless at that point. And then I think... To just try to realize that we, as clerkship directors, have, we have an obligation to our student which is to do as much teaching and coaching to help them to be kind of the best they can be. But then we really do have an obligation to society, um, which I, I very strongly believe is a really important professional obligation as a medical educator.
0: And so that's sort of the end of the, the graders uh, or the students who are sort of, you know, maybe needing remediation or barely passing. What's your advice to the clerkship director who struggles with the students who are not happy about not getting honors and question your grading yeah. system or how they so were graded? So we, um, a long time ago, and this was not my idea,
1: um, but I've expanded it to other courses, we have grading committees now so that... And that's probably been the most helpful thing in terms of dealing with the personal guilt of a grade, is that we have four or five faculty who sit on a grading committee and look at every student. And that way you have five sets of eyes. It's a committee who makes the decision. And so you feel less personal responsibility as a clerkship director because the grade is developed by consensus, and we now do that for our clerkship, we do it for our sub-I, we actually now do that for our ICU rotations, Um, and even for our Department of Medicine letters, we have a handful of faculty who actually look at each, you know, either student or person applying in medicine, so it's not the decision of a single person. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So on changing tax a little bit, what was the biggest mistake that you've ever made in a leadership position?
1: Biggest mistake? I've Oh, I've made a lot of them. Um, biggest mistake
0: I've made. The one you sort of come back to from now and then thinking, oh, God, I really screwed up there, but I really learned a lot from it.
1: Um, give me a second to think about this one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this. I I may have to, like, (laughs) come back to this. But I think – I don't know if this was the biggest one. It's the first one that came to my mind. Um, There was a student who – this was years and years ago. There was a student who was – on their medicine rotation, and was working with a resident who was demonstrating some fairly unprofessional behaviors, and um, I ended up talking to the program director about this resident while the student was still on the rotation, and the um, the bottom line was the resident kind of heard about the issue and figured out that it was the student while the student was still on the rotation, which created a pretty difficult situation for the student that it involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just remember thinking, like, that, you know, it probably was unprofessional behavior that could have waited to be addressed until the student had come off the rotation, but the student was really upset, and then the resident was very upset, and it created a whole... Kerfuffle. um
0: so in a dress one that
1: actually comes to my mind but i sure i have done other like really <laughs> dreadful things um <laughs> and i've just blocked them out which is why it's so hard to think of them right now
0: <laughs> no problem um what single thing other than your family because i have a feeling you would answer your family what sing- single thing you've done in your career are you most proud of
1: I know you too um, well, I guess. In my career, the thing I'm most proud of. Um, I guess two things. I'm proud of some of the programs that I have developed at Penn, and I'm um, really, you know, I've created a, a few medical education courses for medical students and a certificate program and a fellowships um, in medical education for our specialty fellows, so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, And I'm proud of the research that I've done that um, helps us to understand a little bit more about observation of learners with patients and um, assessment.
0: And and what was the certification um, program that you started for the students?
1: fourth year are required to take courses that are called frontiers, which are courses that bring them back predominantly to the basic science and show how much medicine has changed since they were first-year students, <clears throat> and it talks about the future of different diseases. And so there's frontiers in HIV, frontiers in sleep medicine, and so I was able to um, convince the school to do, to let me do a frontiers in medical education, you know, given that, you know, our students are going to go off and be residents and be teachers and talk about the science of education, and so I originally piloted with a one-week frontiers course, and the students loved it, and they said, it's too short in a week, we want two weeks, and so now I run a two-week frontiers course, and then that turned into a certificate program, so... I run a, uh, I guess it's like a 16 month certificate program in medical education that students apply to in their third year and they do it kind of during their third and fourth year and they do this two week course in medical education and then we meet monthly. They do um, you know, teaching, they record their teaching, they uh, do a medical education either curriculum development or scholarship project. Um, And then I run something very similar for second- and third-year fellows in the Department of Medicine.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. It's
1: it's been fun, and at least for the fellow – well, for the students it's fun because they say when they go on their interviews, and it's not just students in medicine. In fact, I think this year only one of my certificate students is going into medicine, but – They all, like, talk about how when they go on interviews, everyone asks them questions about it. And for my fellows, last year was the first year of the fellowship, but a handful of my fellows got, you know, APD jobs coming out of their fellowship. And, you know, they might have gotten those fellowship jobs anyway because they're amazing people. Um, But it's nice. I think the certificate, Mm -hmm. you know, gave them a little bit of background that maybe made them, you know, more attractive for those positions. I don't know.
0: And were those fellows for uh, subspecialties in medicine predominantly yes. or mm-hmm.
1: uh-huh. yeah so uh-huh. like last year I had seven fellows and it's a one year fellowship and so I had two onc fellows I had a endocrinology fellow, I had a palm pulmonary fellow ID renal and GI Wow. and the GI fellow who also had a master's in education. Um, Got an APD job or a fellowship? Got a, like a associate fellowship director job. Um, the endocrinologist got an APD job, and the one of the pulmonary person actually got a kind of stayed at Penn and got a, a role doing like simulation um, and simulation and education.
0: Wow, well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Hmm. So, on um, another tack, um, what makes someone a great mentor?
1: I think great mentors are people who have a vested interest in you, a genuine vested interest in you, um, and want you to succeed. I think great mentors are great listeners and great communicators, um, and I think they really help you to identify what are your goals. Um, are they the right goals and um, and and most importantly like how are you gonna accomplish those goals and like to help you not just like well here's what you want to do but here's how you're gonna go about doing it and I also think great mentors have the ability to direct you to other people um, so the networking um, the networking component of it particularly if they're like not the right person or they need you know, you should meet with somebody else because you have a similar research interest or career interest. Um, So I think those are some important characteristics of mentors. And then they obviously have to have expertise in whatever it is they're mentoring you in.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me about one or two of your most important mentors?
1: Yeah, so... And I guess I would summarize the last thing. They kind of need to be competent and kind. Um, <laughs> so I would say my, I have a handful of mentors, so I'm very fortunate, and I'm somebody who I've had really – I think I've been exceedingly fortunate um, to have had such good mentors. So Judy Shea, who's at Penn, um, has been one of my mentors, and Lisa Bellini has been my other mentor. And then probably from a research perspective – um, Eric combo has been a big mentor from a research perspective, along with Judy. Um, and then I guess the other thing, which, um, you know, people talk about peer mentoring, and I think Karen Hauer and I um, became friends through AIM, um, and we're definitely friends now, but I think we
0: also have been sort of peer mentors to each other. And is Judy Shea in, an internist also?
1: No, she is actually a psychometrician. So huh. she has a PhD.
0: Oh, interesting. huh? Yeah. I guess she would be the equivalent of David Irby for Karen Howard or something like that. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I think so. Or like a Pat Sullivan. She's like Pat Sullivan. Um, so she known her since i was a third year resident and she my first research papers were with her and they would come back i'd write a paper and there was more red on it when it came back than there was like the writing that i had actually done and i thought i will never be able to do this Um, but she would not only help me with like my research design and my papers but she would um Throughout my career I would meet with her probably two or three times a year. I'd bring I'd have to bring in my C V and she would go through, Okay, here's what you need to get, you know, reappointed or promoted and she'd count up what I had and we would talk about how many talks I had given and how many research projects I had done and how was I gonna get more talks and you know, how many studies did I have in the pipeline, how many was I writing up. I mean, she kept me pretty honest. Um it, it, I don't think many mentors actually do that <laughs> in a very granular way. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so, um, so being physicians and wanting to help people sometimes makes the role of being the, <clears throat> how should we say, the tough guy in a leadership role difficult. And I think a lot of physician leaders struggle with this Yeah. because it's not why we went into medicine to be tough on people. But do you find yourself struggling with this?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. I was going to say, if you have an answer to how to navigate that, I would be all ears. <laughs> I haven't sorted that out.
0: How do how do you think you deal with it, and sort of maintaining a gentle hand yet doing the right thing when it's required? Um,
1: I think I just I do talk to a lot of people when I am struggling with something, just to convince myself that it is the right thing to do, and um. I don't know I, it's very uncomfortable, but I think at the end of the day, I usually do what the right thing to do is it just feels internally you know uncomfortable difficult uh-huh. um, and then you just tell yourself that uncomfortable feeling it feels really bad right now it will that bad feeling will eventually get better, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I'm usually somebody I think who does the right thing, and that is the driving process and I think you just share with people, you know. You can't always make popular decisions, Um, and if you're somebody that likes people to like you, and I'm one of those people who I like for people to like me, it is hard, but you have to remind yourself it's about making the right decisions in a way that is fair and try to communicate it as best as you can and explain why you're making the decisions that you have to and just reminding yourself like you can't always please everyone. Which is hard, if you like to please everyone.
0: <laughs> any any examples come to mind of when you've really struggled with this? Um, oh, you
1: ask hard questions. Um... I'm sure
0: there is. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yes. Or you wouldn't have been able to answer that question so eloquently. Yeah, no, I'm sure there is. I just have yeah. to think of a good example. Yeah. Um, so being in a leadership position or having multiple leadership positions as you do can sometimes be a little bit like working in a bubble. Um So how do you get out of that bubble and stay connected with what's happening with your students, the residents, and other faculty um, in terms of patient care and sort of the struggles of practicing medicine these days?
1: Yeah, so um, I have a lot of meetings with the folks who now run the clerkship and the sub-I, and they are kind of on the ground you know, hospitalists, and they're, you know, seeing patients in the hospital setting. And so making sure that the folks who are in those roles um, have that on-the-ground experience, we try to solicit a lot of feedback from students and residents along the way. Um, And then, you know, I practice in the outpatient setting, and I have students with me in the office. I precept in resident clinic. Um, And I've not given, and I see patients, and so I've not given any of that up because I do want to have the practical understanding of what's actually going on on the ground. Um, And along the way, (coughs) folks have, you know, said you should cut back on clinic or precepting, and I haven't because that's how I sort of try to keep my hand in what's happening you know, mm-hmm. in the care of patients and the complexity of our system and dealing with the electronic health record and, and all that stuff. But I have to rely on other folks for the inpatient component of that. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and how much um, precepting in the clinic and working with the students in, while you're seeing patients, how much of that are you doing still?
1: So definitely not as much as other people. So I see patients, um, my own patients, two half days a week. And I precept residence in clinic a half a day a week. I spend about – we have an outpatient attending rotation that's like a full-time kind of role, um, and I do that four week, two two-week blocks a year. And then I have a medical – well, I, I would say I have a medical student with me probably 25% of the time when I'm seeing my own patients. Although we just, um, my practice, we just decided last week that we were going to help out the family medicine rotation by having students rotate in our office as a family medicine site, even though we're general internal medicine. And um, so I will probably have a student with me, a clerkship level student with me, a lot more of the time Mm -hmm. going forward.
0: Wow. That sounds like a lot of clinical time, actually.
1: Yeah, it's about like thirty-ish percent, or I was told 0. 0.28, I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's like three. Uh-huh. It's three half days a week. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I any le- for me, any less? At least right now, this is a good. As a general internist, um, I think I'd feel uncomfortable doing less and kind of maintaining my
0: clinical skills. Um, and is your practice that you're in is that like owned by the university or is it? it's not a private practice
1: no it's a it's a university practice it's a faculty practice
0: so it's sort of right there on site
1: yeah we are i mean we're a few blocks from the hospital and we are a practice we're a general medicine practice that has faculty and then it's also a resident practice as well i mean many years ago we got rid of like faculty practice as different from resident practice so it's we have combined faculty resident practices, so hmm. um, we have it's a training site for residents, and faculty also have their own patients there.
0: Got it. Huh. Um, tell me what it's like getting feedback from you.
1: You mean like when other people have to get feedback from me? Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been told that. Um, I have been told that. Uh, so apparently, I project that I have this very high standard, <laughs> and um, and so uh, I try to give feedback. And you know, I give talks about giving feedback, so I definitely go through all the steps of what you're supposed to do. Um, and so I hope it's well received. Um, I I definitely have been told that I have this, like, very high standard or bar, and so I think that sometimes is hard for learners. Um, But, you know, at the end of most feedback conversations, the people who I give feedback to tell me that it was helpful. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But I'm probably the worst person to judge my own feedback. you have to ask the people that I give it to.
0: Uh Or you'll have to film yourself sometime, I guess. Yeah. Um, what are the things that really kind of set you off? You know, the things that type of things that push your buttons.
1: Um, lying pushes my buttons. Um, lack of professionalism pushes my buttons, and um, kind of not taking ownership and like having the will to do something kind of pushes my buttons. Like laziness. Mm-hmm
0: okay um so what are a few words of advice you would give to young aspiring leaders in the medical profession you know whether it's for doesn't necessarily have to be for the types of jobs you've done but people who are like you know coming out of fellowship and residency and junior faculty that are aspiring to be leaders what, what advice would you have for them
1: um would say um, find good mentors whether that's within your institution or outside your institution and recognize most people need more than one mentor find a organization that you can call your professional home and so for me that was definitely you know CDIM and AIM. Uh, and be reflective of yourself as a leader and try to get input from other people about how you're doing so that you can grow in your leadership role and try to lead in the things that you think are really important.
0: That's great Realize you're going to
1: make mistakes, and that's how we all learn and grow.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. My final question for you is, what is your favorite non-medical book?
1: Oh, my favorite non-medical book. Oh, there's a lot. Oh, um, you can
0: name more than one.
1: I can name more than one. Uh-huh. Okay, well, this is really good. So I loved the book, uh, Jane Eyre and Weathering Kites. Any others? There is oh, a. Um, there's a book that I read to my kids when they were, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. It was called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. <laughs> and I don't know why, but that book was just—it was a great book.
0: The Miraculous Journey of Edward, of Edward Tulane.
1: Tulane. Huh. Okay. I think that's what the name of the book was. We were reading it, and then I just remember we were all sitting on the bed as I'm finishing reading the story, and I'm crying, my girls are crying, my husband's in the other room, She's he's like, what is going on in there? <laughs> I think that's what it's
0: called. Uh-huh. I don't know.
1: It's a sappy kid's
0: book. And there you have it. uh, Interview with Dr. Jen Kogan at Perelman School of Medicine in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Really appreciate Jen's willingness to be interviewed for this podcast and for publication in AIM Insight. You can see the printed version of this interview, which is uh, definitely more uh, consolidated than this recorded interview. And I should add that uh, I did actually... Purchase a download of the audiobook called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, uh, which is a a very good book. It's by Kate DiCamillo. I'm a mega commuter, so I have lots of time to listen to audiobooks on my way to and from work. So I recommend it. I didn't cry at the end of it, but maybe that was because I wasn't reading it to my kids um, or anybody in my family. But I think you'll enjoy it. It's a great recommendation. We will hopefully see you next time for another interview uh, with a leader in medicine. And in the meantime, we'll be adding some more podcasts. uh, There's several fourth-year medical students at UC Davis working on podcast projects with me, or I should say I'm working with them, uh, their ideas that the students came up with, and I just helped them refine, and we'll get those posted over the coming months, uh, as well as some more mix apps recordings so you can learn some medicine in between uh, getting some other interesting things listened to. Enough said. I hope you all have a great day. Thanks for listening to Mountain Lion.